earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends, and thank you for joining me today on A Word from the Word. Today is part five in our series, Scrutinizing Scripture. Can we believe our Bible? Last time in part four, How's Your Circulation?, we took a curious yet provocative look at some facts about book circulation in general and Bible circulation in particular. I shared that books that make the bestseller list can sell a few hundred thousand copies. Then there are books that occasionally sell over a million copies. Then, on rare occasions, a book may surpass the 10 million mark in sales. While these statistics are certainly worth celebrating, when we compare them to the Bible, it becomes jaw-dropping. The number of Bibles sold now reaches into the billions The Bible has been read by more people and published in more languages than any other book. As of 2016, with only 200 Bible societies reporting in 200 countries, scripture portions have been produced in 1,515 languages and 4.3 billion complete New Testaments have been distributed. The Bible text is better preserved than the writings of Caesar, Plato, or Aristotle. The evidence shows that the Bible we have today, particularly the New Testament, is 95.5% true to the original writings. And friends, here's an appropriate place to make a comparison with Shakespeare's writings, written between 1564 and 1616, right around the time the 1611 King James Bible was being translated. When we scrutinize Shakespeare, the following results pale in comparison to scrutinizing Scripture. In an article in the North American Review, the writer makes some interesting comparisons between the writings of Shakespeare and the Scriptures. This clearly reveals that much greater care was bestowed on the biblical manuscripts than upon other writings, even when there was so much more opportunity of preserving the correct text by means of printed copies than when all the copies had to be made by hand. The author disclosed the following. It seems strange that the text of Shakespeare, which has been around now for only some 450 years, should be far more uncertain and corrupt than that of the New Testament, now over 18 centuries old, during nearly 15 of those centuries where it existed only in manuscript form. 
with perhaps a dozen or twenty exceptions, the text of every verse of the New Testament may be said to be so far settled by consent of scholars that any dispute to its readings must be related rather to the interpretation of the words than to any doubts respecting the words themselves. But in every one of Shakespeare's 37 plays, there are probably a hundred readings still in dispute, a large portion of which materially affects the meaning of the passages in which they occur. Well, friends, today's part five is that indestructible book. I'd like to begin by sharing a true story that occurred some time ago on a Sunday morning in Afghanistan with a young soldier sitting in his bunkhouse alone. And before the story unfolds, friends, imagine you were stranded somewhere or beyond your control, found yourself in a region away from everything familiar to you. Which would you prefer to have with you, your Bible or a deck of cards? Now, before you blurt out an answer, imagine that this region you are stranded in is decidedly against Christianity, especially not allowing you to have a Bible or any Christian literature. So now, would you decide to opt for the deck of cards? Do you have any idea how a simple deck of cards can aid you in recalling a boatload of the Bible's grand truths? Well, friends, let's return to that Sunday morning scene in Afghanistan with the young soldier alone in his bunkhouse. It happened to be quiet that morning. Guns, mortars, landmines hadn't made any noise. As he sat there, he pulled out his old deck of cards and spread them across his bunk. Just then, his sergeant strolled in and asked, "'Why aren't you with the rest of the platoon?' "'Well, sir, it's the Lord's Day, and I wanted to spend some time with the Lord.' The sergeant then remarked, "'Looks to me like you're getting ready to play cards.' "'Oh, no, sir,' the soldier replied. "'You see, since Bibles and other Christian literature are banned in this country, "'I've decided to talk to the Lord by studying this deck of cards.' Trying to mask his disbelief, the sergeant asked respectfully, "'And how will you do that?' The soldier happily responded, "'You see, Sarge, the ace reminds me that there's only one God. The two represents the two parts of the Bible, the Old and New Testament. The three remind me of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The four signifies the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John.' The five reminds me of Jesus' account of the ten virgins, five of which were foolish, but five of which were ready for the bridegroom's coming. The six stands for the six days it took God to create the heavens and the earth. The seven, the day God rested after working those six days. The eight reminds me of Noah's family, his wife and three sons, and their wives, eight people whom God saved from the flood that destroyed the earth the first time. The nine is reminiscent of the account of Jesus cleansing the ten lepers. He cleansed ten, but nine never returned to thank him. The ten represents the ten commandments that God handed down to Moses on tablets of stone. The jack stands for Satan, initially one of God's angels, but who rebelled against God and was cast out of heaven for his sly and evil ways. He is now the joker of eternal hell. The queen reminds me of the Virgin Mary, Jesus' mother, and that Jesus' birth was a miraculous one. The king, of course, stands for Jesus, for he is the king of kings. 
Well, the soldier went on, and the sergeant's eyes were just riveted to that deck of cards. A deck contains 52 cards, representing 52 weeks in a year. The four suits represent the four seasons of the year, spring, summer, fall, and winter. Each suit has 13 cards, the amount of weeks in a quarter. So you see, Sarge, when I want to talk to the Lord and thank him, I just pull out this old deck of cards, and they remind me of all that I have to be thankful for. Well, the sergeant, nearly mortified, just stood there, and after a minute, with tears in his eyes and a throb in his heart, said, Soldier, can I borrow that deck of cards? Well, friends, last time I somewhat humorously posed the question, how's your circulation? Meaning, of course, a play on words for our circulation of God's word to the people around us. Second Corinthians chapter three supplies the inspiration for a cliche we hear often enough. William J. Toms once said, be careful how you live. You may be the only Bible some person ever reads. But I'm here to tell you, friends, that this doesn't get us off the hook. The Bible was meant to be published and distributed, handed out, if you will. Well, today I want to again increase and reinforce our appreciation of the Bible, the book of books, and solidify our confidence in it as a literary and spiritual work. Curiously, the Bible is referred to in many different ways. We speak of it as God's Word, the Good Book, the Holy Scriptures, and in the tradition of the Apostle Paul, the Sword of the Spirit. The Apostle Peter also refers to it as the Living Word, no doubt the inspiration behind the original Living Bible by Ken Taylor. My own addition to this list is the Book of Books. Some people simply call it the book, for nothing else seems necessary. It stands alone, towering above all other writings, yet in the spite of those wonderful nicknames, it would seem that the most appropriate name should be God's Miracle Book. And I believe this is true for a number of reasons. The Bible is miraculous in its origin. In other words, it was divinely inspired, a term that unfortunately falls short of the original meaning, to be breathed out by God. The Bible is miraculous in its durability. In other words, it has outlasted the opposition of its critics and survived its enemies' attempts to exterminate it. More on this later. The Bible is miraculous in its results. For those who read it and believe it, it has transformed their lives. The Bible is miraculous in its harmony. In spite of being written over a span of 1,500 years by over 40 different authors in three languages and on three continents, the Bible agrees in all its parts. The Bible is miraculous in its message. The message from Genesis to Revelation is that a supernatural God intervenes in the affairs of mortals to accomplish his plan to redeem and save humanity. The Bible is miraculous in its preservation. The Bible's overwhelming manuscript evidence has preserved its accuracy and reliability down through the centuries. No piece of literature in history has the body of evidence to back it up like the Bible.
Well, friends, two of these miraculous aspects I'm going to zero in on today are the Bible's preservation and durability. And that's why I'm calling today's installment That Indestructible Book. And today we're going to begin with a portion of John chapter 17. John chapter 17 has often been referred to as Jesus' high priestly prayer. And rightly so. Here Jesus is interceding in prayer for his disciples, for their effectiveness in spreading the gospel, and what that will require and for all future disciples that will come after them. So this prayer is for us, too. Naturally, there are several important elements to Jesus' prayer, and several themes are interwoven. But today, I want us to pay particular attention to what Jesus says about the Word of God. Just before Jesus begins his prayer, he says, A time is coming and has come when you will be scattered each to his own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed. And friends, I'd love for you to read the entire chapter 17. It's rich. But today I'm directing our attention to verses 12 through 17. Remember, Jesus is talking to his father. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. Now, remember, friends, whenever a New Testament speaker refers to the scriptures, they're referring to the Hebrew scriptures, our Old Testament. So, Jesus continues in verse 13, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So, friends, in these six verses, verses 12 through 17, Jesus says three things about the word of God. First, scripture would be fulfilled. Verse 12, this implies a divine plan. Second, I have given them your word, verse 14. This implies a divine provision, which assumes divine preservation. Third, your word is truth, verse 17. This implies a divine power. Now notice, friends, how verse 17 begins. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. The word sanctify is a somewhat quirky word for our generation, but it is a powerful word, nonetheless, and worth cracking open. Behind this incredible New Testament word is the idea of being set apart for holy or sacred use, even to be consecrated for God's usage in the following of and carrying out of his will in our lives. It also carries with it the idea that we are to separate ourselves from profane things and live dedicated to God's will and plan. 
Along with this, we are to be cleansing and purifying our lives through the power afforded us by the Holy Spirit. Friends, isn't it interesting that the member of the Trinity who inhabits us is referred to as the Holy Spirit? And his role in our lives is to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ and to lead us into holiness of life and living? Isn't this what sets us apart from the world? Isn't this what distinguishes us from how the world lives? So, friends, Jesus told us that the word of God would be fulfilled, implying God's divine plan for his word, and that he, Jesus, would give his disciples God's word, implying God's provision for them, and implying that God's word has been preserved for this purpose. And finally, Jesus indicated that God's word brings with it divinely sanctifying power that would enable his disciples to live the way God wants them to live. And this word of God would be the durable word of God, never to be destroyed or done away with ever. Friends, just listen to a representative sampling of some Old and New Testament scriptures that validate these remarkable truths. Psalm 119.89, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Settled here means stands firm. Matthew twenty four thirty five. Jesus says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall not pass away. He also said in John ten thirty five, The scriptures cannot be broken. Broken here signifies being destroyed, dissolved, demolished, from a word that means to unloose something fastened. In other words, the scriptures are fastened securely, and they cannot be unloosened. 2 Timothy 3, 14-17 bears repeating, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own private interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 We constantly thank God that when you received from us the words of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Friends, these powerful declarations place the burden on God to preserve and guarantee accurate transmission of his word down through the ages. You see, friends, this is precisely where the atheist, the agnostic, the skeptic and critic throw out their smoke screens. They come in the guise of a presumably innocent question that goes something like this. Oh, the Bible has been copied and translated so many times over and changed. So how can we be sure we have what was originally said or written? And friends, this is precisely where you, the apologist, can step in and clear away the obstacles to faith and demonstrate that faith in the Bible and in the Christ of the Bible is a reasonable and intelligent faith based on overwhelming evidence available to us from numerous academic, historical, literary, archaeological, and scientific disciplines. Friends, just listen to some additional interesting facts about the Bible's preservation. 
First, the Bible was originally written on perishable materials, stone, clay, leather, papyrus, skins, and vellum. Second, the Bible was copied for hundreds of years before the invention of the printing press, yet its correctness or accuracy has not diminished as shown by the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947. The late Bernard L. Ram, Christian apologist, theologian, and prolific writer on religion, science, and Christology, once described the method for transmitting and preserving the Bible's manuscripts like this. In his book, Protestant Christian Evidences, Jews preserve their scriptures as no other manuscripts have ever been preserved. With their masora or tradition, they kept tabs on every letter, syllable, word, and paragraph. They had special classes of men within their culture whose sole duty was to preserve and transmit these documents with practically perfect fidelity. Scribes, lawyers, and Masoretes, whoever counted the syllables and words of Plato or Aristotle, Cicero or Seneca? Friends, God has not only preserved his word through time, but through the attacks by its enemies who have tried to ban it, burn it, and outlaw it, in the 1800s, author and preacher H.L. Hastings once said, Infidels for 1800 years have been refuting and overthrowing this book, and yet it stands today as solid as a rock. Its circulation increases, and it is more loved and cherished and read today than ever before. When a French monarch proposed the persecution of the Christians in his domain, an old statesman and warrior said to him, Sire, the Church of God is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. So the hammers of infidels have been pecking away at this book for ages, but the hammers are worn out and the anvil still endures. If this book had not been the book of God, people would have destroyed it long ago. Emperors and popes, kings and priests, princes and rulers have all tried their hand at it. They die and the book still lives. Friends, former President Ronald Reagan once said, I never had any doubt about it, the Bible, being of divine origin. Point out to me any similar collection of writings that has lasted for as many thousands of years and is still a bestseller worldwide. It has to be of divine origin. Friends, this is also worth repeating. Voltaire, the French philosopher, writer, and avowed atheist who died in 1778, boldly announced that a hundred years after his death, Christianity would become extinct and pass from history. Yet, ironically, only 50 years after his death, the Geneva Bible Society set up shop in Voltaire's own house and used Voltaire's own printing press to publish and distribute Bibles. A thousand times over, the death knell of the Bible has been sounded, the funeral procession formed, the inscription cut on the tombstone, and committal read, but somehow the corpse never stays put. 
No other book has been chopped, knived, sifted, scrutinized, and defamed. What book on philosophy or religion or psychology has been subject to such mass attack as the Bible, with such venom and skepticism, with such thoroughness, upon every chapter, line, and tenet, the Bible is still loved by millions, read by millions, and studied by millions. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, I can see we're at the end of today's program. Today's broadcast will close with an email where you may write me. I'd love to hear your feedback on today's or any other program you've heard. Remember, friends, the podcasts of A Word from the Word are freely accessible at faithtalk1360.com. Just search under Local Program Podcasts. You can also access the podcasts at Spotify and Apple. Please share these with family and friends and with people who need to learn these truths and facts about God's Word. That indestructible book. And if a word from the word has blessed you or illuminated something about God's word to you, please also consider becoming a support team member. Just ask me for the details. It's listeners like you that help keep this program on the air. Well, thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com.